don't know if you've have you ever had that um, uh, that feeling of deja vu, that feeling that you've you've been there before. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of deja vu, that that feeling that you've been there before. <laughs> How many times have you been there? Uh, Price is enough. Um, today we're going to have a bit of a deja vu experience. Um, you, you, you're going to say, well hang on a sec, Chris, we read this three weeks ago, four weeks ago. It's the same story all over again, because this morning we're going to read the feeding, the story of the feeding of 4,000. And I'm like, Sunday going, no, no, Chris, it's 5,000. I did the story on Sunday school. It's a 5,000. Uh, being fed. Um, and well, yes, we know, right, that Jesus did feed 5,000 people. Just a couple of weeks ago, we read that story. But now, this morning, we're going to find that just a couple of weeks later, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Colin, can you do me a favor? Just give me a little bit of water. Thank you, man. Um, so, I know it's going to sound much the same. It's going to sound as though we've just done this before. And apart from just a slight change in numbers, there's a lot of repetition. And in fact, it's so repetitive and so similar that a lot of so-called smart Bible scholars will tell us that Matthew messed up. That there really was only one time when Jesus fed a whole crowd of people and Matthew just kind of forgot what he'd said a couple of chapters earlier and rehashed the same story, either just to, thanks Colin, either just to fill in the gaps, maybe had some spare space on his parchment, I don't know. Um, Poor Matthew's just getting a little bit elderly and uh, forgot what he'd written already, and so we've got the same story twice. But there are su sufficient differences in the story for us to go, no, that's not the case, this really is a different story, it's a different event. And more than that, the two stories actually point to two different kind of aspects of Jesus' ministry and, and present different outlook on what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is accomplishing. And so we're going to get there in a moment. But one thing that we need to be, to be mindful of in reading the story this morning, going through the story, is to remember what we read last week. And so if you weren't here last week, let me give you a quick recap. Jesus had left Israelite territory, gone to the area of Tyre and Sidon, and met with a Canaanite woman. And the, the Canaanite woman um, was all about crumbs from the table. And, and the point of the sermon at the end of it was, remember this, dogs' lives matter, right? Or Canaanite lives matter. <clears throat> and I can't believe that I missed this very obvious thought last week, but canine lives matter. <laughs> you see how they, you know, dogs, canine, canine, I, I thought that's pretty good. Uh, I don't know, lame, I know. Um, but we finished last week with the Canaanite woman saying, the crumbs are enough. And we finished with us going, the crumbs are enough for us too. That we'll take even the crumbs for his hand, because even the crumbs of his grace is sufficient. And while that is true, and while we'll, we'll accept the crumbs, we'll find this morning that he gives more than crumbs. That he has an abundant grace to give to his people. So with that in mind, when you turn to Matthew chapter 15 and uh, read with me, follow with me, um, just the last 10 verses of that chapter, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 29. 
you read this. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. And then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. And he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. So he told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they turned to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 beside women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into a boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. So there are a couple of interesting features in the story. One of them is, well, do you remember the story of feeding the 5,000? Here's how that story went. Jesus went to a desolate place, fed 5,000 people, went up a mountain, and then crossed the lake. This story is kind of that in reverse. Now we read that Jesus went around the lake, went up a mountain, and then fed 4,000 people in a desolate place. Now there's nothing significant about that. It's just a nice, clever storytelling technique. Um, and I just wanted to point it out to you. You're welcome. <laughs> That's cool. um, my sermon this morning is not going to be like this classic three-point sermon. It's kind of just work our way through the story and pull out the bits as we go along. But there are going to be a couple of words, I think three words that get highlighted as we go. The first is worship or adoration, and then we'll, we'll pick up on compassion, and then finally on satisfaction. So That's kind of where we're going. But just to fill in the story as we go and see where it leads us. So Jesus has left the area of Tyre and Sidon, the Canaanite area, and he's come back into Galilee, and he's now walked around the edge of the lake, he's walked around the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Matthew doesn't specifically tell us exactly where Jesus ends up. He's just walked around the shore somewhere. Mark tells the same story. He also tells the story of the 4,000, and he tells us that Jesus arrived in an area called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis just means the ten cities. That's what Decapolis means. So this was an area on the edge of Galilee that had ten, they called them cities, but actually ten little towns or ten villages. And they were considered free towns, though. They were populated by Greeks, and they, they did not fall under the direct rule of King Herod. It was kind of like... I don't know, this little semi-independent state within the borders or right on the edge of the borders of Israel. And so they, they had their own little a guy called a tetrarch, the guy who was in charge of these ten cities. Um, and these little cities, these cities maintained their Greek heritage. So just to be clear, this is Gentile territory that Jesus has arrived in. 
So here's what's happened, right? Jesus has been in this Canaanite area with this Canaanite woman. He tells her that he's come for the lost sheep of Israel. And then he leaves her hometown and goes straight to the next nearest area of Gentiles. And you're like, what is he doing? So some people say, well, he's still just trying to keep a low profile, trying to avoid the, the religious Jews and Pharisees because they would never go into Gentile territory and, and risk uh, defiling themselves by hanging around with Gentiles. But here's what Jesus is actually doing. He's, he's deliberately going into Gentile territory and he's going to show us that the Jewish Messiah is going to expand his kingdom beyond just nationalistic boundaries. And so Jesus goes into this area, and he goes up a mountain, he ascends a mountain, and that image just brings to mind all sorts of Bible stories of Moses going up the mountain to receive the law, or in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus going up the mountain and, and giving the Sermon on the Mount, which is in a sense a reenactment of the law. Or, or the story of, of Abraham going up the mountain and finding a substitute sacrifice for his son Isaac. And maybe just a hint of what is to come with Jesus ascending a mountain and Him providing or being the substitute for us. And He gets up the mountain and He sits down. And He sits down not because He's tired or because He needs a rest. He sits down because back then when a rabbi sat down, it meant that He was about to start teaching. So here's what we do, right? I stand and you sit. But let's try something different. Why don't you all stand? Because you need a break. I quite like this. So, so if I did this for the next 25 minutes, would you be happy to stand where you are? Please don't shuffle your feet or make too much noise. Uh, if you could just... Um, I wonder if maybe I should get my feet up in another chair. Okay, now that's just... Have you got some bread? Yeah, yeah I'll spread some, spread some bread around. So that, that's kind of how the Jewish rabbis would do it. They would sit, the congregation would stand, and they would listen to what the rabbi had to say. And so that's kind of the implication of what's going on here with Jesus. He sits down with the intention to teach. And we assume that he does teach, but we're not told that. What we are told is crowds from all over gather. And we assume that the crowds are from Decapolis, because that's the area that he's in. And so what's happening is that there's this whole bunch of, of Gentiles coming to listen and to hear what this Jewish Messiah has to say. And in fact, they're not just coming to hear what he has to say, but they bring with them their lame, their blind, their mute, their crippled, and many others, and they lay them at his feet, and he heals them. He's healing the Gentiles. Now, this is about more than just Jesus healing the sick. I mean, it's fantastic that he heals the sick, but there's something bigger going on. Do you remember when John the Baptist was a little confused, a little bit concerned about, is Jesus really the one? So he sends some disciples to Jesus asking that question, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should we look out for someone else? I don't know if you remember what Jesus says to John the Baptist's disciple, but he sends them back saying, Go and tell John the things that you've seen. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. 
And Jesus isn't just reciting that to them so that John and the disciples can go, oh good, the Messiah is healing people, that's great. What Jesus is doing, he's pointing out to John, remember what the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah would do? That's what Jesus is doing. He's quoting from Isaiah. And he's doing the same here. Isaiah announced 800 years earlier that the, the Messiah would come, he would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he would preach freedom and healing, and the blind would see and the deaf would hear. So this isn't just that there are cool and groovy healings happening here, isn't this exciting? But it's an indication that the king is here and that the kingdom has come. And so what's happening then in Matthew 15 is that Jesus isn't just healing a bunch of sick people. Jesus is acting out the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom of God amongst the Gentiles. And we go, oh, that's nice. But the disciples would have been mind-blowing, right? Because the Messiah to the Gentiles? Surely not. Surely not. Because the, the Messiah, in their thinking at that time, the Messiah was meant to be this uber-Jewish guy. He was the guy who was going to take over from Herod. He was going to secure Israel's borders and turn Israel into this empire. The idea of Messiah in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago was all about nationalism and nationalistic fervor. It was borderline right-wing politics. It was us and our little group and we're going to ex it was about excluding others. And so this idea of a Messiah announcing the kingdom and including in that kingdom Gentiles just didn't fit at all. I mean, imagine, imagine Julius in his next political rally announces that the EFF is now a place that welcomes the Boers. <laughs> I mean, is that ever going to happen? And if it did, what would be the response of his supporters who have listened to what he's had to say for the last few years? And that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is announcing that the kingdom is not for this little select insular group connected to a particular set of DNA, but that the kingdom is expanding. That the kingdom is bigger than this. And the result is that the crowds are amazed and they worship the God of Israel. Now I think that is one of Matthew's little hints that this, these aren't really actually Jewish people. Because you, it would, it, it's kind of awkward to say that the Israelites worship the God of Israel. I mean you would say the pagans worship the God of Israel. That makes more sense. But it's a kind of a repetition of itself to say. So, so here, here are the, these people praising a God they don't usually worship. Now archaeologists have dug up this area, this Decapolis, and they found in this area all manner of Greek idols. They found statues of Zeus and Apollo and Artemis and all the rest of them. So remember a few moments ago that these people had maintained their Greek identity and their Greek culture? Well, they also maintained their Greek religion. And so this community, this area, this Decapolis, it's all about idols and idolatry and all about the, the suspect pagan rituals that the Greeks of the time associated with their religion. And Jesus steps into this land of idolatry 
and into this land of false religion and crosses the borders beyond the borders and boundaries of God's chosen people and brings grace and mercy and wholeness and life and kingdom to these lost idol worshippers. And the response from them is that they worship the true God of Israel. Now, did they completely abandon their idols? I don't know. I don't know what happened six months from this point. But at this moment, in this place, they see the power of the true God on display. And they go, our idols have not been able to do anything like this. Our idols have not been able to, to heal us and bring back vision and restore hearing. In fact, I'll mention it later, I think their idols are the ones that keep them captive in those very things. So Jesus steps in and does what no idol can offer. He sets them free and they worship the true God of Israel. And it's at this point that Jesus then calls the disciples to him and says, I have compassion on them. And I've got to think that the, the, the disciples are going, compassion? Are you sure that's what we're feeling? Because that's not what we're feeling. We're feeling something different to compassion. We're feeling frustration. We're feeling, uh, we're feeling uncomfortable because we're out of our comfort zones. We're feeling like we're in the wrong place because we're on the wrong side of the border. Because no one feels compassion on the Gentiles. The Gentiles, as we saw last week, are dogs. And the standard Jewish rabbi belief of the day regarding Gentiles was that God had created them because he needed something to burn that was why God created Gentiles, seriously. It's like, we're going to have heaven and all the Jews will be there and we'll be, there'll be a hell. And in order to keep the fires going, you need firewood, right? That's the purpose of the Gentiles. You know, you've heard this before, the standard prayer of the day. I thank you, God, that I'm neither a Gentile, nor a slave, nor a woman. Sorry. But at least the first bit, forget about the rest. But they, they certainly, that, that, that's how they, they thought. Thank God I'm not a Gentile. Anything but that. No God fearing Jew had compassion on Gentiles. You had disdain for Gentiles. On them. These people who are far from the grace of God. And you'll remember from a few weeks ago what that word compassion means. It means to be moved deeply within. It means a little more is what it means to, to suffer along with. And so here's Jesus looking at this crowd of Gentiles who worship idols, and Jesus says, here's how I feel. I'm suffering along with them. And isn't that exactly what he does? Suffers along with us. We tend to think of compassion as being, oh, shame. You know, it's a little condescending. And it's with the, with the intention of, we'd like to see this fixed. We'd like to help fix whatever's broken. But it's, it's kind of condescending, looks down, and it's, oh, shame. And it's a little bit of distance from what's gone wrong. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. And Jesus is looking at these guys saying, I suffer alongside them. I feel 
their pain and I long to alleviate their suffering. And that's our Saviour, who has compassion on you, who suffers alongside you. It's always helpful for us to remember this, right? That, that we don't follow Jesus so that nothing bad will ever happen to us. We don't follow Jesus because there's this guarantee out there that we'll never be sick, that we'll never lose our job, that we'll never get old. <laughs> Joel. Um, we follow Him and we know this. He suffers with us. That He is with us in our suffering. Many of us, and I know, I know we do, I want it. We want the magic wand to just waft away all the problems and make life easy. But that's not what Jesus does. He walks with us in our suffering. There was a time when Jesus says um, how the Father knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. And the way it's worded, the, the picture that's drawn is not just God in heaven with a little, uh, you know, ding popping up on his cell phone going, ding, another sparrow is gone, ding, another sparrow is gone. Oh yes, so it's not just he knows intellectually that a sparrow has died, but the implication is that he falls to the earth with the sparrow. And are you not worth more than the sparrow? The fact of Jesus' compassion should encourage us hugely this morning. Here's what Bishop J.C. Ryle said 120 years ago. He said, let them, that's you and I, let them remember that their Saviour is full of compassion. He will receive them graciously. He will forgive them freely. He will remember their former iniquities no more. He will supply all they need abundantly. Let them not be afraid. And then I love this next phrase. Christ's mercy is a deep well of which no one has ever found the bottom. It ought to comfort the saints and servants of the Lord when they feel weary. Anyone feel weary? Let them call to mind that Jesus is full of compassion. He knows the world that they live in. He knows the body of a man and its frailties. Any of you starting to feel a little frail as you age? I'm not going to say, Joel, I'm not going to say that. He knows the devices of the devil. Have you experienced any of that this week, the devil at work? Let them not be cast down. And then I love this because this is just so, just cuts right across the grain of everything our world stands for. He knows that weakness, failure, and imperfection is stamped on all we do. So I'm sorry if that knocks you off your card of self-can, I can do it all myself, superhero kind of, you know, build your self-esteem, but I just, I love the reality of that, that weakness, failing, and imperfection is stamped on what we do. But despite that, let them not forget that word which says, 
His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so in his compassion for this crowd, he says to the disciples, listen guys, they've been with us for three days now. We're in the middle of nowhere. We need to give them something to eat. And the disciples are all, oh my goodness, where are we going to get enough food for this crowd? And it does sound a little bit like just three or four weeks ago. How do you expect us to feed all these people? And part of me is going, don't you guys remember? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it might have only been two, three weeks ago. It was two chapters ago. So maybe it was six months ago. But even if it was five years ago, you don't forget something like that, right? So like, you guys forgotten? And I'm just like, seriously? I don't think that they've forgotten. I think, what, I think there's two things going on here. I think on the one hand, they're going, oh no, here we go again. <laughs> Feed the crowd. <laughs> just a heads up, Jesus. We have nothing. So it's, I, I don't think it's that they've forgotten. I think they're just stating the obvious. Our hands are empty. It's a bit like them coming to, coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, if you're depending on us, we have nothing to offer. Which actually is a pretty good thing to say for all of us. Jesus, if you're depending on me, my hands are empty. I don't have much. My hands are empty. But I think there's, there's perhaps something else going on here as well in the background. The sense that, okay, we get it. Jesus will feed 5,000 hungry Jewish people. Is what the Messiah does. It's manna in the wilderness. It's Jesus providing for, uh, for his people. But Gentiles? Is he seriously going to do the same thing again for Gentiles? I mean, we remember last week, very clearly, children get bread, dogs get crumbs. These guys are dogs. So what do they get? Not bread, right? Surely we're not going to do this, Jesus. And yet it's exactly what Jesus does. And he shares the benefits and the wonder and supplies the abundance of the kingdom of God with godless, idol-worshipping Gentiles who are trapped in their worship of Greek deities who offer no hope and offer no life. And he offers it freely because he has compassion on them and he suffers with them. And here we are. Guilty as charged. You might not have a Christophes in your family background. You might not be able to identify yourself as Greek. But then you probably don't have a Finkelstein in your background either. So you're not exactly part of God's chosen race, apparently. We really are all idol-worshipping, needy, broken Gentiles. And I know you don't have a statue of Zeus in your back garden. At least I don't think you do. I haven't seen it. Um... But we do idolize all sorts of things, don't we? We make an idol of our race. We make an idol of our culture. We make an idol of our, our home, our jobs, our family, our mirror. How many of you do that every morning? <laughs> right. we, we, we make an idol out of our technology because we can't live without it. We make idols out of our politics, 
out of our economic philosophies, out of our entertainment, the list could go on and on and on. All the things from which we derive some measure of meaning, all the things to which we say, this will fix me, this will fix my world, if I could just, if the rest of our society could just get this, it will be fixed. This will satisfy, this will make me happy, this will keep me happy. And just like these Greeks, our idols can't keep us from being crippled, blind, and lame. In fact, I think our idols tie us in knots. I think our idols, well, no, I think I know, our idols blind us to spiritual realities. The love that we have for our idols blocks our ears to the word of God spoken to us. Our idols keep us crippled and broken and in a wheelchair. And Jesus looks on us with compassion. And horrifying to the disciples, he says, let's do something about this. And so seven loaves of bread and a tin of sardines are found. And the people are fed and they're satisfied. And again, that's a great word, isn't it? To be satisfied, the cravings and longings of the human soul, satisfied. How many of us live dissatisfied lives? Not just not quite content. Perhaps not totally miserable, but just, just a little off. I read this week that one research paper concludes that 51% of people around the world are dissatisfied with how democracy is working. And that's people from democratic countries. Like, well, let's try something else, right? Let's try communism. I don't know. Let's try one man. One vote, like one man with the, with the only vote, you know. <laughs> Maybe that'll work, I don't know. I think most of us are probably okay, we're, we're kind of content, but I, but I think there, there lurks within us just a bit of a, mm, it would be nice to have a, a slightly bigger house, a slightly newer car, a slightly younger spouse. <laughs> Or, or maybe a slightly more mature spouse, uh, depending, I don't know. Um, slightly more compliant kids. Maybe you were less than satisfied with that meal at the restaurant this week. Perhaps it was overcooked. Perhaps it was undercooked. Perhaps it wasn't quite enough on the plate. Perhaps it was the dinner that got served last night. Don't say anything. this nagging feeling inside of us that we, we should be doing better. We should be further along. We, we should have, perhaps we should have achieved more than where we are. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, joking about everyone else's age. I'm getting closer to 50. I'm, I'm, I'm a ways from the, but I'm getting closer. And you kind of look and you go, is, is, is this what I've accomplished? Shouldn't I have been further along? Shouldn't I have achieved more? And whether you're closer to 60 or closer to 40 or whatever it is, do you kind of look and go, shucks, I'm falling behind here. Zen, the art of Zen, tells you that you can deal with your dissatisfaction by turning inward and loving yourself. <laughs> so turn yourself into a mini-god and that's where you go to for unconditional acceptance. Turn yourself into Zeus. Good luck with that. 
We know that dissatisfaction so often leads to sin. Right? Dissatisfied with my spouse, I'll try a new one. Dissatisfied with my bank account, I'm going to have to add to it somehow. I'll any which way I can. It's why we overindulge. It's why we become obsessed with the latest diet or the latest exercise regime or the latest political party or whatever it is because we're dissatisfied with what we have and so we're going to obsess about something else. And Jesus satisfies. Jesus fills the empty spaces. The answer isn't to turn inward and try and love ourselves, but to turn outward and to see His great love for us. Because His love is big. His love is enough. He satisfies. So here's, here's the words of a rapper that I've never heard of in my life before, called S.O. So, so, I don't know. I'm not going to try and rap it. I'm just not that groovy. But I just like his words. How it feel like chasing the wind, homie. <laughs> don't we do it all the time? We never chase God, but think that the woman or the money will forever satisfy. That ain't what we're designed, designed for. And I can tell you that with my eyes closed or blindfolded. It's mind-blowing. Our souls need God, cousin. That I know, brother. Yes, I know. Jesus satisfies. Psalm 22 says this, The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord shall praise Him. He satisfies. Fix your eyes on Him. And I've got to say, saying this, it sounds cool, but I kind of wrestle with it a bit. What, what does it mean to say Jesus satisfies? I know that, you know, the good old answer, well, just read your Bible and pray. But to be honest, I read my Bible every day, and there are days where I'm like, I'm just not satisfied. Here's what I think we need to do. Sometimes we need to I've used this phrase before, but sometimes we need to find the sin beneath the sin. Here's what I mean by that. We need to find the idol that, that is what prompts the external, the physical act of sin, right? So, for example, so often an affair is not just about an affair. It's about a deeper-rooted sin beneath it. Perhaps a deep-rooted need to feel loved that you think you're not getting at home. Or, or a need to feel appreciated that you're not getting at home. And, and so the sin beneath the sin of adultery is this perceived need for love and acceptance. Or perhaps it's just a desire to prove to the world that even in middle age you're still desirable. Or whatever it is. The, the point is this. To see that Jesus loves you unconditionally. That Jesus alone accepts us as we are. That Jesus alone doesn't require that we prove ourselves. And so Jesus satisfies the sin beneath the sin. He meets that deeper need. Cuts out the root before the fruit grows. Perhaps it's the same for what drives you to abandon family for the sake of business. Often it's not just about making money. The sin beneath the sin is that I must be secure. I must prove that I'm worth something, that I'm valued and valuable. And again, Jesus addresses those that, that sin beneath the sin. He, he says that we're secure in Him, and that we're worth something to Him. And so part of what we need to do is, is to figure out what it is that lurks within us. What is the sin beneath the sin that prompts the external 
behavior, whatever it is, and to see how Jesus, through the gospel, meets that deeper need. So often we deal with the external and forget what's rooted deep inside us. It's like, you know, it's the garden, right? It's, it's going to Dan and Kiri's farm and, and chopping up all the lantana, but not dealing with the roots. It's like us at our house yesterday, cutting down an old barber tree, but <laughs> we're just not going to dig the roots out. So what's going to happen? I mean, it's just going to regrow, right? And so often we're like that. We, we deal with all the surface sins, but forget the deeper root within us. We need to look and see His great love for you. We want to be loved, and so we look for that love, and we look for that acceptance all over the place. And we try and earn it by behaving in a certain way. And yet we come to Him and find that He loves us as we are. But loves us enough not to leave us as we are. But His love is unconditional, and we need to see that. And so we don't need to rush around looking for love and acceptance elsewhere. He satisfies that longing. He satisfies all the longings. And then you see what happens after the story, right? They, they go and they pick up seven baskets of bread. Remember the last time that they fed a large group? They picked up 12 baskets. Now, now there's a couple of interesting things in this. In the last story, those 12 baskets were little baskets. They were like backpacks. They were like a, a day pack that you would take around with you. But these baskets, these baskets are a, they're a hamper. That's what it is. It's different words. This is a hamper. So there's a story of the Apostle Paul. We read it a little while ago in the garden where, where uh, the Apostle Paul had been lowered out of a city, down the city wall, in a basket. Well, it's this kind of basket that Paul is in. So it's a basket big enough for a human being. That's how much Jesus satisfies. Not just a little basket, but he fills the hamper. But you know something else that's interesting? Twelve baskets in Israelite territory for, what, twelve disciples? For the twelve tribes of Israel? No, I think so. Indicating that God is sufficient for all His people. I think that's great. I think that's, that's the kind of imagery that's behind that. So, so why the seven baskets here? Well, remember that Jesus has just come from that Canaanite woman and offered her a few crumbs. But you know what the Jews believed, and I think, well, not just the Jews believed, I think the Bible tells us that there were seven Canaanite tribes. And if that's the case, and twelve small baskets indicate that there is enough grace for the people of Israel, then what do seven large hampers indicate? Jesus, the bread of life, gives Christ. And yes, the crumbs will be enough and we'll take the crumbs. But he gives more than crumbs. He feeds till we're satisfied and there is, there is enough. There is, there is more than enough even for Canaanites. The kingdom of God is for Canaanites too. And what that means is that the kingdom of God is for us. The kingdom of God is for you and for me. And we'll be content with the crumbs but he supplies us with Hampers full of grace. He has compassion on us. And what encouragement that is. He satisfies our deepest longings. And not just with crumbs, but with bread that was meant for children. And what should that prompt in us? Oh, that's a nice sermon. Thanks, Chris. Let's go home and have some coffee. Should it not prompt in us a sense of worship at all? Should we not be blown away by this? 
be able to say this morning, I'm unworthy. I'm an idolater. I'm one, and, and it's true, I'm, I'm one who looks for a bigger house, newer car, better food. Just before lockdown, I sold a few things and bought some guitar pedals for my electric guitar. They're wonderful. And I thought that three were enough. But they're not. You know they're not. Right? And the ones that I have could be better. Yeah, we're like that, aren't we? And despite my weak, imperfect, frail, idolatrous heart, He, filled with compassion, satisfies. And I keep needing to remind myself of this, that He is enough. And I'll take the crumbs. But He's got hands full, ready to give freely. And so how can I not join with these Greeks in worshipping the God of Israel, and worship Jesus who has opened my blind eyes that I may see Him, who has unblocked my deaf ears that I may hear Him, who has healed my sin-crippled soul that I may run to Him. And so when you worship with me today, what a Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are our Savior indeed. That you give light and life and hope and joy. That you satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. Lord, we, we recognize, we acknowledge that we are, um, our hearts are stubborn and hard. We chase our idols. We so often forget that you and you alone satisfy. Lord, we pray this morning, may we be satisfied deep, deep within. Satisfy our souls, we pray. Amen. We're going to close by singing once the, my chin warms up.
So Lord, we do turn our eyes to you. We lift our head to Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. And we celebrate and rejoice in your compassion and find this week once again that you and you alone are enough. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys. Stick around for a cover and have a chat.